Welcome to Beyond Carbon, the podcast where we find out how investors are thinking about climate change, sustainability, ESG, and a whole range of related issues beyond carbon. Welcome to this episode of the Beyond Carbon podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Ito, and today, George Dyer and I are having a conversation I think that's really at the heart of transformational change in the investment world. Today, we sit down with Ian Fuller, who is the CEO and co-founder of West Fuller Advisors. Now, West Fuller stands out to me in two areas. Number one, they're one of the few investment advisors offering an outsourced CIO service that's dedicated solely to impact investing. And second, as a minority and women-owned investment firm, they've overcome a lot of systematic barriers to achieve what I think is, by most measures, a significant level of success. Now, West Fuller's rise is unique, but should it be? Investment firms led by people of color make up just 1.4% of the professionally managed assets in the world. Ian's professional journey isn't just a story about breaking barriers or overcoming odds. It's really a testament to the richness of diversity and also the untapped potential in the world of finance and investing. And our discussion touches on whether the stats that I mentioned are a function of the supply of talent or the way that investors select advisors and their money managers. When you listen to Ian talk about his own journey from the streets of the Lower East Side to Wall Street, you can make the connection as to why West Fuller as a business centers itself around the investment philosophy of impact investing. And we talk about the just transition in particular and why making investments for the just transition might not quite be in sync with concepts like net zero investing. And I think we all agree that figuring out why and how to align those two concepts is going to be a focus of much effort in the future. So whether you're an investor looking to drive change or simply someone who cares about our collective future, this episode hopefully enlightens and perhaps challenges the way you think about the role of money in our march toward a more sustainable society. So stay tuned for our conversation with Ian Fuller. Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to remind our listeners that the content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The following discussion does not constitute professional investment advice, and listeners should not make any financial decisions based on the content of this podcast. Now, let's get started with the show. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, George. It's great to see you. You too. And uh, yeah, looking forward to our conversation. Um, to kick us off, you know, Chris and I have both gotten to know West Fuller a little bit as a firm over the past couple of years, but love to just hear a bit about your personal journey in terms of what you brought, what brought you to this field and uh, to the work you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. So started my career in more traditional finance. Uh, I was at Merrill Lynch's private bank for a number of years before my partner, Lola C. West, and I um, left to found West Fuller Advisors in 2011. And over the course of time, West Fuller has really become sort of a values-aligned investment advisory firm, thinking diligently about impact and financial returns on behalf of our clients. Uh, my own personal journey started as a, a kid, arguably from somewhat challenged circumstances, but also just deep exposure to the arts, to social activism, to an understanding of what economic security can mean for both myself, but also communities at large. And I think there always had been a backdrop of trying to figure out how do I integrate my 
kind of work with a lot of my social commitments early on in my career. And so I recall early in my days when I was working at Merrill Lynch, we'd sort of do our sort of financial advisory, investment advisory work, and we would be volunteering um, in Newark, New Jersey. And I was running at that time a financial literacy class on the weekends um, for all boys school in Newark, New Jersey. And that was always kind of the beginning process of trying to figure out ways to, again, integrate the sense of impact um, with my, my sort of day job, if you will. Coupled with that, I was always volunteering for work with a number of different extraordinary organizations, principally in the social justice space. And all of those kind of um, lenses, if you will, began to sort of congeal around the firm that we have today. Um, both my partner and I have always been deeply committed to social activism. I serve on the board of a number of extraordinary organizations, um, such as the board chair of the Margaret Casey Foundation, Treasurer of Color of Change, Malcolm H. Charitable Foundation won't bore you with all of them, but it's really just to kind of underscore this deep kind of integration that we're constantly trying to have for how we not only serve our clients, but also help to advance impact. Mm-hmm. Was there sort of like an aha moment or, or an event that led you to combine that you know, work to improve society with your, your day job in the investment field, or did it just sort of evolve? I will say it evolved in, you know, in honest candor at this moment, right? I think when I look back, it all looks like it's some was a logical linear trajectory that I had well mapped out, but I'm sure it was none of those things. I will even confess in our early days, we were, you know, really reticent as we launched our firm about how much we could wear our hearts on our sleeves, mm-hmm. um, right down to as a diverse owned firm, do we put our names on our, our faces rather on our website? Um, those were the kinds of debates we were having early on about, we have to build a successful business that can scale and sustain the test of time, um, but also how do we integrate our values? And I will say that in our early days, we kind of got off easy to some degree, it was the sort of halcyon period, as you'll remember within the capital markets where technology and growth were sort of winning the days, right? And so it was easy to make a case for why values aligned investing mattered in the early 2010s. And that was what we really leaned our our practice on early on, as well as kind of not necessarily a a strategy around diverse managers, but we always worked with in our early days, at least in the private asset space, diverse managers who were thinking about how do we achieve high impact, high returns, and wound up seeding some of the really what now some 13 years later, are some extraordinary managers in that space in the private sort of venture and venture capital and real estate. That's kind of how it all came together. Definitely not nearly as neat, but over time and with each sort of passing year, we were able to better find integration. And fortunately, the market is sort of, to some degree, um, swung in our favor around a desire and interest and a commitment towards integrating sustainable strategies um, overall. Yeah. You know, Ian, you, you've mentioned to me a couple of times that you know, you guys are 100% impact investors. And I think for the most part, the clients you serve are really committed to that discipline. And, you know, you alluded to something just now around values aligned investing. And, you know, the term impact investing, I think means different things to different people. And sometimes it all gets lumped together, right under a broad categorization of ESG. Can you maybe describe or go into a little bit more detail, sort of what does impact sort of mean to you and maybe differentiate it from what the market sort of characterizes as values aligned or or ESG investing? I think there's a lot of confusion out there, right, still. There is. And I think we see it even um, as we speak to clients, as we speak to the ecosystem, and even as we continue to refine our own practices, 
around this. What I'll say is I sort of fall in line with the sort of conventional definition of what impact looks like. And I'll, I'll take that and extend it in a bit. But really around this idea of how are we driving positive outcomes that are in fact measurable um, very, very fundamentally. And for us, that often aligns with a just transition framework. I think for those in our firm who are approaching this body of work with what we consider lived experience, so those of us who've come from impacted communities, those of us who've come from disinvested communities, we're using that as a lens for how we think about driving impact in the communities that we think um, most need resources, most need um, shared prosperity, most need ability for self-determination and dignity. And that is kind of a guiding principle in light for the work that we do. Values alignment, I often think, is a really important, critical element of that, but it's not necessarily always deeply connected to driving impact outcomes that positively advance. And so values alignment is arguably where we started, right? Are we thinking through our, our firm practice started, I should say, in that we're screening out sort of the negative, most bad actors within the, the economic system to the degree that we can, right? So private prisons, reducing fossil fuel, reducing uh, sort of other harmful practices across the capital markets within our portfolios. That's where values alignment, I think, began. And then sort of this idea of how are we sort of positively adding in elements within a portfolio strategy that begin to advance some of the things that we care about. And then from my perspective, looking at sort of a, you know, sort of that chain of impact as we think about it, really those opportunities that drive, again, those positive outcomes that are measurable for communities. And if we're not getting those things, then it's not really aligned with impact, with intentionality in that way. And, and for us, really seeking opportunities that are deliberately adding a contribution, a net contribution, if you will, um, to those things that we most care about. And I'm curious, I want to pick up more on the, the just transition piece and sort of how that shows up in investment strategies. But curious, you mentioned sort of the ability to measure the impact on communities and in the real economy, how do you how do you think about impact measurement? I know that's been a continuing source of struggle in the field. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, you know, it, um, I was with clients yesterday, as Chris knows, and it was you know it's a topic of all conversation. We've in our own firm have had a, a committee that has been leading an impact management and measurement body of work. We're also currently participating in the fellowship program, um, strengthening impact measurement with Impact Frontiers and Bridges Foundation to continue strengthening our, our overall practices. Uh, we view this very much as a learning journey. I think some have joked and even somewhat dismissively, I'll say, about the cottage industry that's popping up around impact management and measurement technology, the various um, sort of alphabet soup that exists within the ecosystem. And what we've tried to do is kind of a inside and outside strategy, I will say. So we're participating in sort of a number of the peer industry associations. We're members of GIN um, and trying to participate in that body of work, which we think they've done an extraordinary job of building a robust ecosystem around KPIs that can be used to measure impacts, um, but also trying to make sure that we're developing a body of work within impact management and measurement, IMM, that we can implement it, right? That's practical. And I think that's one of the things that we've really continue to refine our own practices on. And I'm not to suggest we've solved it by any means. And I don't believe anybody has from what we've seen. I um, mean, so we're currently using more of a hybrid approach of leveraging some of the leading practices that Impact Frontiers developed under the Impact Management Project. So the ABC framework, which I think most are familiar with, avoid mm -hmm. arm, uh, benefit stakeholders, contribute solutions is one of our kind of top level frameworks. And then we sort of dial further in with a series of KPIs that we're using or leveraging from GIN and others, and then some that we've customized uh, as well. And so 
we're taking, again, it's inelegant at this stage. I'm hoping with time, we've got a really formidable team that's working on this kind of issue, again, with peer networks, but also internally. Um, but to date, we're leveraging technology, we're leveraging manual surveys. It is kind of a Frankenstein, if you will, to develop an impact report that we feel we can stand behind. I think that's fundamentally it for us. We feel we need to be able to explain these impact reports with rigor, uh, diligence, true evidence, and in a way that our stakeholders can understand um, fundamentally. And so lots of work to still do there. It is a topic of active conversation across all of our clients, which gives mm-hmm. us excitement around it. I think people are coming around to just the importance of not just talking about impact, but actually how are we ensuring that the kinds of outcomes we're aiming for are being met. Hey, George, I know you want to get into just transition a little bit, but before we get there, I, I wanted to ask Ian a question about impact as it relates to 100% of an investor's portfolio of your client's portfolio, because think a lot of the market tends to think about impact investing as being done more in the private space, venture space, mm-hmm. community-based investing, private equity to some degree, right? Because you can sort of say, hey, my my dollars sort of in the private market make a difference here. They, they create impact because without my dollars, these events or these companies couldn't do what they do in terms of both commercial activities as well as you know, any kind of social benefit. But I think to me, it's perhaps, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, maybe a little bit more difficult to sort of argue impact investing in the public markets. Can you talk a little bit about that, right? And some of the challenges and and it's sort of brought up too with how you described impact measurement, because again, I think it's almost easier to sort of do the impact measurement when you're doing, let's say, community-based investing versus investing in large public companies. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I'm glad you asked this question because it's actually something that really gets my energy up often around this. So I believe that impact can be achieved across asset classes and there is no reason why we should be leaving the public capital markets unaddressed um, for impact, right? I think if we look at the size of the overall global capital markets relative to the private markets, there's such an extraordinary opportunity for us to begin integrating an impact lens within those ecosystems, ecosystems, as we know, that have significant impact across global communities, right? Some of the largest employers are public companies. Um, Some of the largest public companies are, in fact, some of our biggest impacts across the the sort of um, environment. And so from our perspective, whether that's active ownership within the public market space, which we think is an extraordinary way, of course, to leverage impact, and it's one that we have partnered with in kind of a collective action orientation, right down to on the fixed income side, thinking through are there opportunities to create sort of fixed income covenants that help to integrate better practices for corporations. And as you speak to as well on the private asset side, I think often folks sort of view the private asset element of impact as the sort of feel good. And I get that it's sexy, right? It certainly is. You can sort of see and touch and feel and smell that kind of impact. But where we often think on our side for our clients, where up to 70% of their portfolios are often allocated to the public markets. And so for us, it, it is an extraordinary missing if we're not thinking through how do we get impact there. Now, there's a spectrum of impact, right? There's calibration that's necessary within that ecosystem. Um, but we think that there are just an extraordinary opportunities for impact there, working with grassroots movement leaders, 
working with some of the leading asset managers in that space who are really thinking through how are we leveraging our collective voice mm. um, to change corporate practices um, in behalf of the community. Yeah. So you think about investors' stewardship, right, as part of <clears throat> impact almost, right? Is that, is that fair to say? Undeniably, yeah. I think that's that's really where we're we're approaching it first and foremost. But even taking that corporate stewardship one level deeper, which is to say, how are we in fact using the sort of um, practice of corporate stewardship to to advance outcomes that benefit community as well as an, uh, sort of our environment? And we think that there's you know continues to be just an extraordinary opportunity there. We've worked very closely with organizations like Majority Action, ICCR. Um, some of the large labor unions, SEIU, a number of the progressive state treasurers to, again, bring about collective action overall, where we have the opportunity, again, to really change those corporate practices that just have a massive multiplier effect across our overall economy. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think the scale is is so large and it can be tricky to think about how an individual investor has impact in public markets. But I'm glad you brought up the impact management project too, because I think that is a helpful framework for people to think about impact across asset classes. And, and I'm curious, Ian, just to kind of bring it back to the, the just transition piece, both in private markets and public markets and, and really anywhere. How do you see that sort of showing up in your investment processes? Is it looking at opportunities that are you know, driving a transition to a low carbon economy, but are really explicitly focused on communities that, you know, might have historically been marginalized or might be sort of otherwise left behind in this transition? Or are there specific types of investments that you think about when you're thinking about the just transition in this work? Yeah, we do. You gentlemen tell me if the <laughs> sound out here is a little bit too loud in New York City. Um, okay. But to answer your question, George, um, I think fundamentally we're we are still exploring how to, to sort of overlay the just transition framework right we're, we're incredibly excited about it i think we are a movement aligned investment advisory firm we are of course within that same kind of context living out something of a contradiction relative to the call of action that the just transition really places within us and it's obviously a very noble call um, that looks at shifting power and shifting capital to communities most at need but I think for us, what we're trying to do is look at portfolios for where we can integrate that sort of catalytic or impact first program related investment orientation that centers the kind of just transition framework. And then for our broader portfolios, how can we assert kind of a just transition lens within our portfolio design at the core of just transition, as I understand it, and talking to a number of movement leaders to help to develop it. It's sort of a direct assault on our typical sort of capitalist framework, as many of us think through, right? And we are fundamentally hired still for many of our clients to drive alpha um, market-based returns and also look to integrate impact. And that at times feels in conflict with elements of the just transition framework, right? Or at least it's sort of central calling as we understand it. And so what we try to do where possible is identify investment opportunities. And this often winds up being more in the private asset space, as Chris was kind of speaking to earlier, where we think that there is an easier opportunity for an integration of a just transition framework, right? So putting impacted communities at the center of governance and decision making, thinking through um, an investment opportunity that has a direct positive impact for those disinvested communities. 
And so we're hopeful that in time, we may be able to look at some of the governance structures that uh, European economies like Germany have centered, right, where they have sort of these practices that require a labor union lead to be on, on a sort of governance board. We're not there yet in the U.S., of course. And so it, as we think about it from the um, sort of context of the uh, the American economy, the American capitalist framework, it's not as clear where that um, can be tied in on the public markets just yet. And yet we're, we're, we are seeing asset managers who are trying to think through that, even if it's simply in the context of partnering with grassroots organizations to lead um, activist campaigns, stewardship campaigns against some mm-hmm. of these corporate actors. This is interesting, I think, insofar as, and I think, Ian, you know, we have been working quite a bit around net zero portfolios and trying to help clients get to or commit to net zero, adopt net zero. And one would intuitively think that net zero and obviously requiring an energy transition and the notion of just transition, those two things, I think, in theory should fit together. And oftentimes, though, there are challenges in, I think, sort of aligning the two concepts, not saying that they're not aligned, but I think when you sort of you know, dig down into some of the details, you know, you get sort of faced with questions about appropriateness of different investments. And I'm sure you guys have sort of come across those, those instances, right? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right, Chris. I think you, you raise up an extraordinary thing. You know well that some of our clients feel a direct conflict, in fact, with net zero commitments and how that, in fact, has what is the relationship with the just transition framework, specifically the elements, again, that call for that shifting power, shifting capital to the most impacted communities. So think global south. So think yeah. uh, disenfranchised communities throughout the U.S. The net zero kind of commitment framework broadly doesn't necessarily center those kinds of communities at its core, even while it calls upon all of us to look at, at practices that support an advancement towards the Paris Climate Agreement Accords, right? And so I think that is the element that we continue to look at as we are sort of sourcing opportunities. How are the sort of a net zero framework really supporting, again, uplift of these communities that have been most harmed by intense carbonization practices across corporate actors, across governmental uh, actors as well? And so we don't necessarily have a great answer for it just yet, right? I think this is the thing for our own practice, candidly, that we are evolving into. We, we're launching a broad body of work next year well, with a series of different clients, both that kind of hold up the just transition framework, interestingly enough, and net zero at the same time, right? right. And in some instances, Chris, as you know, we're sort of looking at launching this kind of climate action plan for some of our clients, but we have others who are deeply thinking about sort of catalytic capital that is really centered in just transition kind of framework and philosophy, those two things may at times be um, in conflict together if we're not, sort again, centering sort of the impacted communities um, at their core. Yeah, I know it is challenging. We've got a sort of a scope of work around net zero endowments and, and helping endowments make these commitments. And we developed a paper last year on this topic, and it's, you know, the alignment is there, could could be there, should be there. But Absolutely. sometimes as we go through a complicated, complex transition in a complex economy, it's uh, it's can be challenging to find those opportunities for sure. Yep. And, and, you know, I'd love to, you know, kind of speaking of, of challenging transitions and, and complex systems, you know, another big part of our work around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the network is around the diversity in the asset management 
industry or in the financial services industry broadly. And so, yeah, I would just love, you know, hear a little more about your thoughts as an underrepresented manager, you know, in a, an industry that's really predominantly led by firms that are owned or led by white men. Um, I think most people are familiar with the statistics from the Knight Foundation survey that 1.4% of the 80 trillion or so in assets under management are uh, managed by firms that are led by BIPOC individuals or women. So just curious, you know, how Westler as a firm has navigated that, some of the challenges you've faced and, and maybe some of the trends you've seen in the past 10 years or so. Yeah, absolutely, George. It's, it's a fantastic question. As you heard me say, um, and it speaks to, I think, how far the marketplace fortune has come, but it, it certainly has far to go. But you heard me say early in the conversation that we as a diverse owned firm were even fearful of putting our faces on our website. We ultimately did it, <laughs> um, but we we had an internal debate around, is this going to harm us in some capacity? If people know who we are, will they have a conversation to address knowing that we are professionals who can deliver at the very highest caliber? And so the barriers to entry in this business, whether you're an investment advisor as we are, or asset managers are just astonishingly high. Um, fortunately, I think over the last several years, we have seen just a, a really rich environment for early stage fund managers in the private asset space, particularly in venture capital, where um, while there are certainly significant barriers to entry, those barriers to entry tend to be lower than we see within private equity, than we see within real estate, than we see within infrastructure, and certainly within the public markets. And so talented managers who, like us, leaving sort of cushy Wall Street um, careers have to be sort of taking on an inordinate level of hubris in a way, right? I think for any entrepreneur <laughs> embarking on their own, um, it's that it is required um, to have sort of hubris, naivete. Often I joke at this <laughs> 13 years into being, I'm like, looking back, we had no business starting a practice at all. It's, it's astonishingly that we've reached this point in time where I'm no longer fearful that we're going to go out of business. Um, we're well north of the billion dollars now, so I know that we're safe and secure. But I say all that to say that I think diverse managers are facing um, astonishing these challenges, right? We know that there are structural barriers, um, as it's been well um, discussed in the Knight Foundation and bodies of work that you all, of course, have been advancing as well. Um, but there are also just the very significant technical challenges, access to capital, infrastructure, um, sort of runway that every entrepreneur has, but I think that are compounded arguably 10x for diverse mm -hmm. managers. I, I said to a client yesterday during a board meeting when they asked me the pipeline question, which I find very frustrating, there's an astonishing <laughs> level of talented and um, uh, finance professionals that come from underrepresented communities, but what is the sort of apparatus that supports them being successful, right? We look across Wall Street um, and the level of managing directors across major Wall Street is well below that 2% mark, right? We've got reasonable levels of diversity coming in on the sort of young professional level, but how are we supporting successful pipeline development once we have them in? Um, and I think that that extends as well to the ecosystem of entrepreneurs. There are, again, uh, just a, high, a very high level of very talented professionals in the ecosystem. Is there um, an overall apparatus? Is there infrastructure to support their long-term success? And right now, I think it's not there. One of the things that we've been calling on philanthropy to do, because we do think that this is an area that philanthropy can have just uh, an outsized impact as privileged capital, is to not only sort of 
make commitments in this space. And I know that that's controversial in this anti-DEI <laughs> sort of moment, but make commitments to move capital to um, well-qualified, highly talented, um, diverse managers, but also, in fact, consider sort of ecosystem building in this way. So what is the kind of infrastructure or technical assistance that can be developed to ensure that the next sort of generation of talented managers don't have to sort of navigate or rely on a degree of luck um, as well as their own chops, but how are we su supporting them in a meaningful way to get ahead? And so, you know, unfortunately, I think there just continues to be very significant tailwinds. Um, I do mm -hmm. think that the environment has changed, um, or at least there's a higher re receptivity and conversation around this. Unfortunately, though, as you know, if you were to look back longitudinally over the, the data points and statistics around diversity, that needle has just not moved. And so we need far more to be done. Um, we need, as uh, one of our friends in the ecosystem, Melissa Bradley, who I'm sure you and your listeners know well, has called on is we need courage, not just more research papers, not much just more data. We actually need fiduciaries, asset owners who are willing to take the pledge to to look differently. And lastly, what I'll say is that for us as a diverse-led firm, we're also value investors very fundamentally. Um, so there's values-aligned investors, but there are values investors, right? So value investing in that same spirit of trying to find the best opportunities that may have been missed. And for us, we think that that's borne out as an extraordinary investment thesis for our clients. And so we have felt most comfortable often not only investing with the largest asset managers as necessary, but also finding those unseen opportunities that exist in the ecosystem to find the very best talent that may be overlooked and seeding them mm -hmm. has borne out very well for a number of our clients striving again, that impact and alpha as we see it. That's great. That's great. How about, I mean, as an individual in a firm, looking back to 2011 and then thinking back just in the last three years from 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and sort of the response nationally, have you felt a different tone in terms of asset owners kind of seeking out your firm, looking for those perspectives or? Undeniably, undeniably. Yeah. I'd say 2020 um, for myself, as well as many diverse managers was an, um, an exceptional inflection point, right? We had the dual pandemics of that year. Uh, we had significant corporate actors, asset owners making huge um, pledges of racial justice. What I will say now though, is we've entered a more sobering period in which there's been mm -hmm. a huge sort of retrenchment of those commitments. Um, so lots of unmet pledges, I think has been well-documented now, but we're also mm -hmm. seeing the sort of turn of interest, not only the, the assaults from Edward Blum and uh, sort of the sort of conservative element who are leading the charge against DEI, but also just a waning of interest, it seems, from asset owners across the full spectrum who believe in the importance of um, sort of changing the system to providing um, access to capital to, again, allocating capital to diverse managers, which is, it's just an unfortunate thing to see. I, I think many of us hoped, who have a deep commitment to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, had hoped that 2020 really truly marked a change within our, our system um, very fundamentally. And unfortunately, now some two and a half years onward, I think the data is clearly pointing to that we're seeing um, sort of a reversion to the mean, if you will, um, for how these things uh, exist and operate. And so we're fortunate to work with a self-selecting group of clients who have a real commitment towards changing the system. But I think broadly, what I'm hearing from asset managers um, that exist um, today just a far more challenging environment. It's a, it's a challenging fundraising environment for all managers, disproportionately right. so, of course, 
for managers who look uh, like us. Yep. You know, it's interesting. We get asked a question sometimes about, you know, how do these, uh, we'll call them anti-ESG political attacks. We get asked the question, well, how's that impacting us, our clients? What are you seeing? And I think that there is, even if it may not be spoken, I think there's clearly an impact on asset owners. Mm-hmm. Right with respect to some of these, you know, political wins that are that are out there. I think some of what you said sort of, you know, validates that from from the seat that you're you're sitting in. Yeah, yeah no, I think I think that's exactly right, Chris. I think you know we've seen it across the ecosystem last year, in which one of the most challenging years within the capital markets across equities and fixed income, as uh, many of you will recall. So down plus twenty percent in the equity markets, down double digit teens teens in the fixed income market and energy was one of our clear outliers last year in terms of outperformance within the market and i heard actively um, previously heretofore committed <laughs> sustainable um, investors saying should we be rethinking our commitment towards a fossil fuel free or a decarbonized portfolio we heard those kinds of conversations and similarly we think with their diverse sort of manager commitments and initiatives Many were rethinking that as the markets were having challenges. And so I think that that ties together as well with this, with each year that we seem to get out and away from sort of the racial awakening, which seems like a strong sense, what was deemed that at the time, sort of racial awakening in 2020, um, we are seeing that um, kind of interest uh, seed. So think lots of things are at play, obviously causing that, but there's definitely that uh, broader sense within the marketplace that we're seeing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think um, I have some hope in the data and around the you know performance case for both diverse managers and sustainable investing strategies. And you know, we've heard a lot of folks in our network staying the course. And I think I'm just hopeful that this sort of political backlash that long-term investors will will keep looking at the data and sort of be able to ignore that noise and see through some of these longer-term commitments. Because um, on the upside, I've, I've been encouraged that a lot of the endowments that have kind of made these commitments from moving this way seem to be sticking to them. You know, some that might have been deliberating or on the fence might be delayed a little longer. But yeah, um, yeah I think in some ways that whole train has left the station thesis yeah. holds some weight. Absolutely, George. I think, I think you're exactly right. I, I will say we're seeing the exact same thing. I think fortunately across our clients, there's a desire to like double down and lean in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the board foundation that I'm on, the Margaret Casey Foundation, we've done the very same thing. So releasing a public statement, kind of a call to arms across the philanthropic ecosystem to um, not only keep their commitments around racial equity initiatives, but to, again, lean in and double down there. And we've done that ourselves at our foundation, which over half of our 900 plus million dollar endowment continues to be committed to diverse managers very specifically. So I think I think you are right there, but there has been that chilling effect for those who were are arguably more ambivalent about this. Mm-hmm. And certainly I've seen for those who were maybe just exploring what mission investing looked like a year or two ago, they've decided to sort of put that on the shelf um, during this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, you know, we can't close the podcast on something that is on somewhat of a 
<laughs> a down a downbeat, right? And well, I'm, Ian, I'm an optimist, so yeah. I, we, I, we you, you, and I know you are an optimist, and so and yeah. I, and your story is a fantastic story, and the firm you've built is, uh, you know, one to really be admi- admired. And so uh, I want to give you the sort of the last word here, and the ability to sort of you know close this on something a little bit more upbeat, with all of these things that are sort of happening in the world. What makes you hopeful? What makes you hopeful that, you know, the capital markets are going to be able to react differently to all of these challenges that society is facing? I know that may be a big, heavy question. Yeah. There are so many aspects of this work that get me excited every single day that I wake up. It is the reason why um, I was thinking about this on my um, bike ride to work this morning. I live in the Lower East Side and I was coming into my Midtown office and I was thinking, if you're going to be an entrepreneur in this space who's committed to racial justice, economic justice, gender justice, environmental justice, if you're going to be committed to these things, you've got to be in this for a marathon, but you've, I'm a runner <laughs> as well. And so you've got to run this race like you're Kipchoge, right? You've got to be sprinting for the course of the full marathon. The tides do continue to shift in our favor. And I think fundamentally what I believe is that the broader ecosystem of actors when the capitalist ecosystem will see that this is the right way. That may strike many as naive, but I fundamentally believe that treating your workers better, that finding ways to um, improve our impacts on the climate, those are things that are fundamentally central to us having an extraordinary and prosperous society, right? Like I fundamentally believe that. And so I show up every day to my work that we've just got to keep telling the story better. We've just got to keep evidencing why this work matters. And so lots of things give me hope. We were, George kind of asked this question as did you early on, you know, our firm in 13 years, for the first eight years of our our business, we were a small investment advisory shop at 200 million bucks. Um, We crossed over a billion and a half dollars in just the last year. And I have got nothing but optimism that there's an extraordinary market that needs the work that we do to help them align their capital with their mission in a very thoughtful, deliberate, intentional manner. And knowing that there's an increased call, and even while I spoke to the chilling effect, knowing that there is an increased um, ecosystem of asset owners who are deliberately thinking about this, who passionately want to do this body of work, that is what gets me up every day. That, and I will say, we've just had the fortune of building an extraordinary team. Um, I'm now in my mid-40s. I never thought I got started in this career when I was in my mid-20s. I'm like watching the next generation come into our shop. And they just fill me with such hope. They're so passionate about this work um, and sort of evangelizing about why this matters. And so they feel like there's so many extraordinary variables that are supporting that, that optimism. I think I'm just hardwired to be that way anyway. But I will say that I think there are enough data points that point to the fact that that is the right vision for the future. Um, that's what gets me up every day. Ian, you're still a young pup in your mid-40s. <laughs> well, Ian Fuller, that was really both informative and, and inspirational. And uh, we're happy that, that you could join us in talking about the important work that you're doing. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your day. Yeah, thank you both. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Thanks so much, Ian.